Galatians chapter 4 is our text this morning. Galatians 4. One of the important doctrines of the Christian faith is the doctrine of conversion. Conversion. The 1689 Second London Confession of Faith says that God powerfully calls people, quote, out of a state of sin and death in which they are by nature, and two, grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. So there's, in the Christian experience, there's an out of and a to. There is a from nature and to grace. There's an old self and a new self. There's a repentance. There's a turn a turning to God from sin that characterizes a true Christian experience. And in this text, Paul is recounting the conversion of the Galatian Christians. Notice in verse 8, the very first word, he begins with the word formerly. And then in verse 9, he begins with the word what? He's talking about their conversion, their turning from and to. And many of you know something of that experience in your life. A converting of your soul, a turning of your mind and your heart away from the things of the world, away from self-righteousness, away from sin, and to Christ as your only hope. Some of you, that conversion was a rather dramatic thing. And you can remember the day and time when you were converted. For others, perhaps it's a, it's a much more subtle uh, shift and an ongoing um, experience of, of repentance. And it is truly that for all of us. But nevertheless, every Christian who is truly a Christian, knows what it is to come from a state of nature to a state of grace, from darkness to light, from being a child of wrath to being a child of God. Well, Paul is describing their conversion, or he's reminding them, or he's reminding himself of their conversion, but he's also, in this passage, expressing a real fear. And you can see that down in, the, in verse 11. Take a note there again. I'm just trying to give us, get us oriented to the text here for us. In verse 11, he says, I am afraid. Right? You see that? He says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And so he is um, troubled by a fear over a theoretical possibility that was looking for the Galatians more and more imminent. In the middle of verse 9, he expresses the fear this way. How can you turn back again? How can you turn back again, back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? You see his fear? His fear is that they will turn back, that they will unrepent, as it were, that they will de-convert, 
that they will convert back to a kind of paganism from which God had saved them. And so I want to preach to you this morning on a fearful possibility or the fearful possibility of returning to slavery, to the slavery of sin. And that is, in fact, a real pastoral fear. I and every other good pastor feels at certain times some measure of fearfulness and anxiety and concern over certain members of the flock who are giving off dangerous signs of being in danger, that their souls may be in danger, that, that, that there's the potential, it seems, that they could go back to their old unbelief, to their old sin, to their old life, to their old idolatry, to their old false um, teachings and false gospels. And, and every good pastor feels that. And, you, and you're going to see, even, even this week and next week, Paul's, Paul's pastoral heart it's like he's giving them the gospel, he's teaching them a theology, but then he just he's just broken over what seems to be the beginnings of a departure from the gospel. And this is a fear and that a good pastor has. Um, and I, it's probably good for all of us to examine ourselves. And maybe even to ask, you know, am I one of those who causes that kind of fearfulness among those who are given the responsibility to watch for my soul? I certainly have a fear of this for many who claim the name of Christ, perhaps not in our midst, but friends and relatives that we know that that claim to be the Lord's people and yet are, are seeming to begin to fall back into false doctrine, into, into ungodly living, into a state of unbelief. So I ask you this morning to listen with um, soberness to the word of God for us. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Formerly, he writes to them, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I want you to see three things this morning that I think Paul is addressing in this text. He's talking about their former condition, that is, before their conversion in verse 8. And then, of course, in verse 9, he speaks of the transformation that they undergo, and then finally the danger that they're in in verses 10 and 11. First of all, their former condition, verse number 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You see that, first of all, he describes their former condition 
as a kind of ignorance, right? These were the days when they did not know God. Most of the Galatians had been ignorant of the one true God before Paul came into the province of Galatia all those years ago to preach Jesus Christ and the one true God, the Father. Uh, they were idol worshipers, many of them, or at least quasi-religious idol worshipers of some sort. And of course, some of you, before your conversion, were fairly ignorant of God. It is a surprise to me at times, and yet definitely has become less of a surprise, that even in America, uh, with so much of the Word of God going out in every uh, sphere, uh, every form of media, that people can be as ignorant of the one true God as they are. Maybe you grew up non-religious. You weren't very acquainted with divine revelation. And such ignorance, of course, is a very sad place to be. Um, even though most Americans believe in, in a God of some sort, most Americans claim to believe in a God uh, in some fashion, uh, a survey done a few years ago found that fewer than a third of Americans claim to read the Bible on any kind of regular basis, like even, even once a week, like when you might go to church. The lowest percentage, only 24%, was found among millennials that actually read the divine revelation, yet who claim to, um, to know God. What that's done is, is to create a situation in which while Many people claim to be spiritual or religious. They are largely ignorant of the God who actually is, the God who exists. They follow the religion of Shilaism. Back in the uh, 80s, there was a book written by a sociologist, a kind of a survey of American religious commitment, and he recounted an interview that he did at one point with a young nurse named Sheila Larson. And it was a very uh, fascinating conversation. She said this, I believe in God, but I'm not a religious fanatic. She said, I can't remember the last time I went to church, but my faith has carried me a long way. I call it, she said, Sheilaism. It's my own little voice. And I'm afraid that that is exactly what characterizes a lot of American religion, quote-unquote, even Christian religion, people are listening to their own little voice, ignorant of the one true God. Because, friends, we are, by virtue of being creatures, unable to know the one true God except as he has revealed himself. By our sin, we complicate that fact even more so so that our only hope is to give ourselves to his gracious revelation so that we may know him. Like the idolaters in Athens, whom Paul addressed, who were worshiping an unknown God, so many people are ignorant. And, and maybe they would say, you know, but I'm, I'm, incredible. I'm, I'm sincere in my worship of God, and it is possible to be sincere, but to be sincerely wrong. And 
these people were characterized by such an ignorance before their conversion, ignorance of the one true God. Secondly, their former condition was also described as a kind of slavery, right? Notice the verse. He said they were enslaved in their ignorance. They were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. The Bible teaches that before a person's conversion, they are really in a kind of spiritual slavery, unable to break free from sin, unable to go against the irresistible flow of this godless world, unable to extricate themselves from the snare of the devil, the power of the evil one. They're under his dominion. They're part of his realm. He's like the slave master over the realm of darkness in which they abide. And that's the focus here. He says they were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. False gods, then, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4 says that an idol, Paul writes, is nothing. It's no god at all. There are no not many gods. There's one God and only one true God. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 20, he says that when pagans sacrifice things to idols, they're actually sacrificing to demons. So although they're not gods, these cosmic powers, these spiritual forces in high places, as Ephesians uh, calls them, they still exercise a kind of power over people so that people are enslaved to those that are, by nature, not gods. Sometimes sometimes that enslavement is direct. People give themselves over to spiritism, to the occult, even to demonic possession. Sometimes their um, enslavement is through the world by the evil spirits influencing the course of human cultures and just getting kind of swept along in the in the ethos of the moment. Sometimes it comes through subtle temptations that are suggested to the human mind and the human flesh, which is an all-too-willing ally with the prince of darkness, as we know. The devil has many tactics. Sometimes, like a good general, he shows his troops uh, a show of force. Other times he hides in the, in the trees so you don't know what you're walking into. C.S. Lewis, in the preface to the Screwtape Letters, said, quote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, that is, about demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, talking about the devils, the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. No doubt that many people are consider themselves too sophisticated to believe in demonic powers, spiritual forces of darkness, but they are 
held fast by sin and selfishness and godless pagan philosophies of the world. They are just as bound in the chains of darkness as the man who is possessed by a demon. No doubt many of the Galatians had been pagans before their conversion, worshiping various kinds of gods and goddesses. You read about the Roman gods or the Greek gods. This was the world in which they lived. Some worshiped perhaps the emperor or worldly power. Some were into astrology, uh, spiritism of different kinds. And apart from conversion, of course, all people, all people are enslaved to their own sinful desires and, and, and to the powers of darkness that are behind all of these things. And you know, one thing about slavery is that you cannot get yourself out of it by any ordinary means. You are, in fact, by definition, overpowered. You are enslaved. You are dependent on somebody from the outside, a liberator, a savior, a deliverer, a redeemer. And of course, this is what the scripture says. This is Paul's good news, right? Back in chapter 4, verse, verse 3 here, he says, in the same way, we also were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But verse 4, praise God, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to what? to redeem us, to redeem us, to set us free from slavery to sin and, and, and ignorance. God sent his son to buy us out of slavery by the paying of a price. And the price was the blood of his own son. The price was a life for a life, the life of Christ to redeem your life, to buy you back from the realm of darkness and from the judgment of God that has consigned you there because of your sin and your rebellion. What a blessed thing, friends, to be able to preach to you the good news that there is a price that's been paid so that you can be free. You don't have to be a slave anymore, amen? You don't have to be enslaved to the to the condemnation of sin or even the power of sin and one day from the presence of sin at, at all. I mean, that is a freedom that is uh, the Christian's hope and joy and confidence. But that redemption and the freedom that it brings is only valuable when someone is converted, when he is, when he's changed, when he comes to repentance. And in verse 9, Paul begins to speak about their apparent transformation. Their apparent transformation. Verse 9, first of all, he says, but now you have come to what? To know God. Since Paul had come to preach the gospel to the churches of the Galatian province, they had come to know God as he truly is. They were brought out of their ignorance and into the light, praise God. They began to see that there's a God who is the only God, the creator God, that is the creator of everything else that is not that God. This is the Bible's teaching on the person of God, right? God is the creator, 
and there is everything else. There is a creator, and there is creature, and there is creation. And moreover, he preached to them that not only is God the creator, but he is the sovereign over all of his creation. It is not just that Satan has a realm and God has a realm and they're kind of battling it off. Satan's realm is an under part of God's realm. God is sovereign over all things. God is the ruler over everything that he has made, all of creation. He has made from one man all of the nations of the earth. He has set the boundaries of their habitations and assigned the time frames of their lives and of their nations. He is the sovereign. And moreover, Paul preached to them that Christ, that God in Christ is the judge of the world. That one day every man, every woman, every child, every person in this world will have to stand before God and to give an account. God is the creator. He is the sovereign, the ruler, and he's the judge. But he also preached to them that God has come into the world in the person of Christ. Christ Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of God, God in the flesh, and in the person of Christ, God has revealed himself as the Redeemer. And in the Redeemer, those who are in him can be set free, those who trust in him, those who are part of his kingdom, are slaves that are freer than any free man on earth. But they didn't just come to know about God, speaking about this transformation again in verse 9. He did not just simply say, you have come to know about God. He says, you had come to know God. This is not then just, this kind of conversion is not just, you know, a, a religious or theological education. It's not just merely a gaining of certain facts. It's an acceptance of God and of his redemption. It is an embrace of the truth that you hear. It's a personal relationship with God. For Paul has just said that people who have experienced this salvation and this redemption, they cry out to God, Abba, Father, by the Spirit of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they have come not just to know about God, but to embrace God through Jesus Christ by repentant faith in Him, turning from their superstitions, from their idols, from their false um, understanding of God, from their ignorance, and turning to the truth and embracing that truth by embracing Jesus Christ. I want to ask you this morning, do you know God like that? Do you know God? Not just merely knowing about God, but do you know God? I have this quandary sometimes people will ask me, well, do you know so-and-so? You know, you go somewhere and you're always trying to make connections with somebody, find out what you have in common. Oh, do you know so-and-so? And a lot of times I'll have this quandary in my mind. Well, I, I know of him, and, and I've probably met him once, but I don't really, like, know him, and I doubt that he would recognize or remember me, so what do I say, right? And of course, plenty of people know about God without really knowing God. And you cannot know God apart from knowing him through his son, 
knowing him through communion by faith, a union with his son. Because that's the only one, that's the only way you can be his child. You become his child through his child, through his son. You become a son or a daughter of God. These people, he said, had come to know God. But there's an even more profound way to speak about God's salvation, about this um, grace of God, and that is in verse 9, where he says, you have come to know God, or rather, (laughs) to be known by God. I say that's even more profound. Conversion is really rooted in the foreknowledge of God. It's not merely, by foreknowledge, not meaning merely that God knows everything about you. That is certainly true. Not just that God knows what you will do, but rather that he knows you. He knows you in the same way that you must know God. Not that you know about God, but that you have a personal relationship with God. The foreknowledge of God is God's entering into a personal relationship with someone. And Scripture says that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to his Son, and those people he called to himself savingly, and those same people he justified. He declared them to be righteous in and through his son by his sovereign um, foreknowledge and, and, and grace. And those same people he will glorify. He has glorified them. They will enter into eternal life. This is the, this is the deeper sort of mysterious reality behind our coming to know God. The initiative is his. Imagine a little baby girl living in an orphanage, and one day a man comes along and he sees that baby lying in the crib, and he adopts her, and he takes her home, and he loves her, and he raises her as his own, and he takes care of her. And she grows, as she grows, she learns to call him Daddy because it's the only father she's ever known, right? She knows him as her father, but she knows him as her father only because he first knew her as as his child. And this is the kind of love that God has for his children, a love by which he knows them. Earlier I said, you know, sometimes people say to me, do you know so-and-so, and I have that quandary. Well, I don't think of myself as knowing someone if they would probably not recognize me or remember me, right? And what a joy it is when a person can say, in Christ, God knows me. Amen? That's that's this kind of relationship that's being described in this text. Use the term adoption or being born again, but it's, it's a, a, a relationship where you can say, God, in Christ, God knows me. 
And in the last day, it would be the most fearful thing of all to hear from the lips of Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. Say, Lord, you know, I recognize you. I know you. I know a whole lot about you. I've done a lot of things in your name. Do you really know the Lord? Does he really know you? This kind of knowledge really does strip away all of the pride that you could imagine someone having as being a child of God. Imagine someone who knew all your dirty secrets, all your innermost thoughts, all of your skeletons. And if you saw them on the street, you almost wouldn't blame on them Blame them if they like kind of turn the other way and pretended not to notice you, not to recognize you, not to know you. And yet the Lord, who knows everything, says, I know you. I love you. You are my child. All of those who are in Christ are beloved to him. This is the gracious conversion, coming to know God, being known by God. This is what the Galatians had evidently experienced, right? He says, at one time, formerly, this was your life, but now you've come to know God, to be known by God. But Paul seemed to have a great fear that the Galatian Christians seemed to be in imminent danger in imminent danger of reverting back to slavery. Imagine a child who is loved by her adoptive father. He's, he takes her, make, takes, brings her out of the orphanage, takes care of her, makes her his heir, and she is yet thinking about returning back to orphanage life. Or think of a prisoner who's been set free, his fine is paid in full, he's brought into the house, made part of a family now, loved like one of the family, and yet he's tempted to go back to the prison. And you can see why Paul says, what, what are you thinking? Why would you, why would you leave Christ and Christ, all that you have in Christ? Your life is hid in Christ. Why would you give that up to go back? In the middle of verse 9, you can just see it. Hear his agony here. How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You want to go back to being a slave again? Is that what you want? What has God done for you? You're a child of God. You are an heir of God in Christ Jesus. Would you give up Christ by embracing these things? To go back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Last week we talked about the term a little bit. Elementary principles. And I mentioned that the word, it's translated here elementary principles, can refer to spiritual uh, principalities and powers uh, of darkness, evil spirits that stand behind all of the idolatry and the ungodliness of the world. It can refer to that. Or elementary principles can refer here to 
the elementary principles of the faith, as it were. In other words, in the context here, a reference to the law of Moses with the elementary picture lessons of the gospel, the types and the shadows of the law. And their slavery to the elementary principles is further described in verse 10. He seems to be still talking about this when he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain to bring you to Christ, and now you're going back to these things, uh, observing days and months and seasons and years. It's not clear if he's making reference to Jewish holy days or to some sort of pagan um, holy, lucky days, ritual calendar of some sort. Uh, the broader context here seems to me to point toward the observance of the Jewish calendar. So the Sabbaths, the new moons, the festivals, the jubilees, they're going back to all of that, right? That's their temptation. And he's saying, uh, if you do that, then all of my labor in your midst is all for nothing. These picture books of the Christian faith uh, were, were, were sort of for you when you were a child, when you were under governors and managers, but now you have the real thing. Now you have Christ. Even the weekly Sabbath, in one sense, had temporary ceremonial significance because under the law the sabbath was observed on the last day of the week at the end of creation the end of the creation week and while the sabbath was given even before the law before moses and as i understand it remains in place even now the old sabbath nevertheless, has passed away. The new Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, has come. The first day of the week, the beginning of the new creation. But the real problem is not so much that they were observing the Jewish calendar as the way that they were observing the Jewish calendar. The way that they were observing it was that they were observing it no different from the Jewish from the from the pagans, and the way that they observed their astrological times and seasons, sort of lucky days for to be observed in order to appease the gods, in order to bring the people favor with the gods. They were looking to their observances of the law in order to justify themselves before God in, in a way that wasn't a whole lot different from what they were doing as pagan people before. They were substituting ritual for relationship. They were tempted to think about the Jewish observances in the same way that they did their old pagan practices. In other words, they're danger, in danger, really, of swapping one kind of slavery for another. And Paul warns them, that turning away from Christ alone, and that's his gospel, right? Turning away from Christ alone to dependence on anything else 
for justification before God is a form of going back under bondage, going back into slavery. He tells them, hey, you've been set free. You are free and secure in your position with God, in your relationship to God through Christ. You're a son. And now you're tempted to go back and revert back to sin and to self and to self-righteousness and superstition. And he says in verse 11, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. You're so, they're expressing such a tendency to, to give ear to these false teachers. They're pointing them away from Christ to the keeping of the law in order to be justified before God. Paul had thought that they would they were born again. But now he's afraid that perhaps it was just false labor. As he says down in verse 19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Oh, he says, I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain. Christ was not really formed in you. There was not a real faith. He's concerned, he's worried, he's fearful that perhaps this may prove to be the case. So friends, let's back up for a second then and and remind ourselves that conversion is not only characterized by, by knowing God or more deeply being known by God, but it's also characterized by continuing in God by reliance on the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ alone all the days of our lives. In other words, conversion implies perseverance in that faith, in that gospel. Certain people, certainly there are people today who, who seem to be converted, but like that cleaned up pig that you let go and it just goes right back to the mud, they're still a pig. They're a clean pig, they're just still a pig. Or like the dog that goes back to its vomit because it still has the nature of a dog. Their nature hasn't been changed. Their exterior is cleaned up. They're pointed away from their paganism to a sort of form of Christianity outwardly. But their hope, their reliance is not in Christ. In Christ, they are not related to God as a son to a father. Eventually, they go, they're tempted uh, to go back to their old ways and to leave Christ behind. And sadly, for some people who do seem to be believers, who seem to be converted, this, this, uh, this is exactly what happens. This is not to say that This is not to say that a true child of God will ever be lost. Again, let me say, this is not to say that a true child of God will ever be lost. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is talking about false teachers who have, quote, swerved from the truth, and then he warns Timothy that they are, quote, upsetting the faith of some. And here's what he says in verse 19. 2 Timothy 2.19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Amen? What a blessing. It's a firm foundation. 
I love the way he says that. There is a seal upon them that God knows them. Right? Remember, this is exactly what Paul is saying. They know the Lord because the Lord knows them. The Lord knows those who are his. They are firm. They cannot be shaken. They have a foundation that cannot be shaken. So, friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are truly God's child, you should take courage from that. You should take hope from that. That you will not be lost. The one who began a good work in you will Continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, bless God for sovereign grace. Amen? But then he turns around and he warns them in the very next words that come out of the pen of our brother Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In one hand, he says, the Lord knows those who are his. There's a firm foundation. He seals them. But then he says in the very next breath, but let everyone who names the name of the Lord, what? Depart from iniquity. This is the personal responsibility of every believer to persevere in repentance and in faith, in Christ, in the gospel. And there's this sort of, this, there's this sort of admonition that is a warning almost that, that itself serves to to preserve those who truly belong to him by warning us to continue on in the faith, not to revert back, not to go back to our former ignorance, to the false teaching, to our sin, to our selfishness, to our self-righteousness. And this was Paul's great concern for the Galatian Christians. And I... uh, I prepared, I wondered if perhaps I would be preaching this morning to someone who is tempted to, well, to deconvert, to unrepent, to give up or just give in to sin, to just go back. Is that you this morning? Tempted in some way to turn? away from Christ, perhaps to turn to another gospel, maybe through the influence of a friend or someone. You've been tempted to abandon the faith that you have been given, the gospel that you have received, and there is only one gospel, and go and seek after another. Or maybe someone who's tempted to just go back to the life of sin. What fruit were you getting in that old life? Those things only bring shame and in the end bring death. And and maybe someone's tempted to go away from Christ and go in a different direction. Someone's been sowing seeds of doubt in your mind and you just for whatever reason, you're tempted to go in, 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 a, in, a, in a way that is contrary to the Word of God, to the Scripture, to the Gospel. I ask you, where else will you go? Who else has the words of eternal life? There is only one. And He stands ready to receive all those who rely on Him, who trust in Him.
to hope in him and in him alone. Maybe there's someone here who's tempted to get sucked into a kind of superstitious thinking almost that, that thinks like we can, I can appease God, satisfy him by going through the rituals of religion, by attending church on certain days, by going through religious motions, but whose heart is not fixed on Christ, settled upon the Savior. And I fear, I do fear from time to time for some of you that you might be subtly moving off of Christ, moving away from Christ, maybe just subtly growing cold and distant toward Christ. You know, most apostasy and you call it deconversion or unrepentance or just walking away from God. Most of that does not happen in a moment. Listen to me. Most of it doesn't happen in a moment. Some great crisis. Most of it happens by a slow opening of the heart and soul to sin, which desensitizes and clouds the vision. And one day a person says, I don't see it anymore. Yeah, there's no wonder you don't see it. You've blinded yourself. And I appeal to you, my friends, those whom I consider my brothers and my sisters, to heed this word of God for us today. And let today be a day of real repentance. Let today be a day when the clarity of the gospel, you just embrace that once again. My righteousness is found in Christ and in Christ alone, and I want to run to him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I may know God and so prove to be one of those who is known by God persevere, to continue in the knowledge of God and in the knowledge of our our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we give you thanks for this word today. We ask that you would cause it to bear fruit in those who hear. We pray that your word would accomplish that which you purpose and would succeed in the thing for which you sent it. That it would be the means of keeping of those who are yours. And that this word would be the means of salvation, of conversion, For those who up to this point have walked in ignorance of you, the true God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, open their eyes, open our eyes that we may see, work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.